Well, good morning. We are in that series called The Thread. We started back the week after Easter. We're running through the summer. And our goal is uh, to help you be able to talk through the story of the Bible from start to finish. Uh, there is one theme every book of the Bible has in common. Would you repeat the phrase, look forward to Jesus? Because every book points that direction, whether it's his first coming, when he was born in a manger at Christmas, or his return that hasn't happened yet. And so we're trying to have ways you can remember this, and so we're putting some hand motions together. I'm just going to review where we've been. You can just sit and relax and not worry about this week, all right? So we talked about creation gets flooded, uh, the family's road to the promised land, conquer and settle, we three kings, divided we fall, and this week it's shape up or ship out. Now let me talk you through that. <clears throat> First of all, uh, the most important words of the Bible, I think, are the first five words, in the beginning God created. We see that the Bible is a supernatural book. The presupposition is in the beginning God. He was, he's eternal. Always has been, always will be. And uh, creation was, was done sinlessly, and yet man sinned shortly after that. And then uh, the world continued to sin, was filled with violence and sin until he destroyed the world. Creation gets flooded. Uh, with the flood of Noah. And then we see in Genesis chapter 12 that God handpicked Abraham, he and his wife Abram and Sarai at the time, changed their names, handpicked them, they became the, he became the forefather of the Jewish nation, but also all people of faith in the New Testament. Abraham had a son Isaac, he had a son Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons that would become the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. Uh, they went from Israel down to Egypt when there was a famine through Joseph, and then they stayed in, in Egypt and began to prosper and multiply until the king was threatened by them, put them into slavery. They were there for four centuries. God delivered them through Moses, brought them back to the promised land. Joshua followed uh, Moses. and the book of Joshua, they conquer. Judges, they settled in. God's governing plan in the book of Judges was that he would be their king and then there were judges to administer the law. But the people said, we want to be like everybody else, and so we want a king. And so God gave them a king. There were three kings. The first one was Saul. The second one was David. The third one was Solomon. You're right. All right. And uh, that didn't go too well because after that, the nation divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was the tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom was everyone else. Uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell much sooner than Judah did. Uh, Israel fell at 722 B.C., and every king in the line of Israel was evil. They led the people in unconscionable sins to the point of literally worshiping pagan gods in pagan altars where they sacrificed their children to fire and all sorts of immorality. Judah lasted longer, but they still felt they would have immorality. Then a king would repent, return, and they would be righteous. Righteousness exalts a nation, the Bible says. Sin is a disgrace to any people. They would turn again and fall. Then the king would repent. And then it was like that. And they fell in 586 B.C. I want to now go back this week and the next couple of weeks and look at the books of the message of the prophets that spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and then uh, the kingdom once they came back from exile. And so the theme of the prophets is shape up or ship out. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and point at them and say shape up or ship out. All right? <clears throat> It's surprising how much you appear to enjoy doing that to your neighbor. So. <laughs> and uh, we will look at the fact that they didn't shape up, and so they did ship out. They were led away into exile, both of those nations, but that's uh, for future weeks. Uh, in prepping for this message, uh, one commentary wrote about the book of Amos. It could also be said of Hosea. Amos prophesied during a period of national optimism in Israel. Business is booming, boundaries are bulging, but below the surface, greed and injustice are festering. Hypocritical religious motions have replaced true worship, creating a false sense of security and a growing callousness to God's disciplining hand. Famine, drought, plagues, death, destruction, nothing can force the people to their knees. Amos, the farmer turned prophet, lashes out at sin unflinchingly, trying to visualize the nearness of God's judgment and mobilize the nation to repentance. 
The nation, like a basket of rotting fruit, stands ripe for judgment because of its hypocrisy and spiritual indifference. And these two prophets spoke to Israel 30 to 40 years before Israel would fall and be deported to foreign lands. This past week, uh, Wednesday, I drove to Michigan and spent a couple of nights uh, with Gary and Cindy Falter. Uh, they moved to a lake house in Michigan, and so Gary and I crammed as much fishing as we could from Wednesday night to Friday morning when I, when I came home. And uh, we, I had to have my notes ready Tuesday before I left. And so on my way to and from Michigan, I listened to an audio version of both Amos and Hosea. I, I use uh, BibleGateway.com. Uh, and what threw me in, uh, in listening to it was uh, the severity of what God was about to do. In fact, when I listened to them both for the second time on my way home, I, I, when I was done, I just shut everything off and I drove in silence with cruise control so I could just reflect. And I was like, God, what am I supposed to do with this? I'm preaching this tomorrow. We, we, we don't like to hear this. I don't like to preach this. And how do I reconcile the harshness, the severity of what you threatened and what you did to your people? And what's even more sobering is the, I don't think I'm putting two plus two together and getting six. I try to do good exegesis, interpretation of Scripture, but I see a very a dreadful, scary, close parallel to the people of Israel and what happened to them and our nation and our world now. And it begs the question, what will happen to us? The statement that I tried to summarize it with, I wrote down the dreadful severity, I mean dreadful, of the judgments of a God of justice on ungodly people who knew better. Past tense. It's really what Amos and Hosea are about. And, and it causes me then to fast forward and wonder about the, uh, the dreadful severity that may be facing us. And this is not the kind of message that I enjoy preaching. It's not the kind of message that is real commonly shared. In fact, I have to kind of think about it. Uh, Friday, I'm, I'm old school. I still go to the bank and talk to a teller and all that. How many old school people? Are, there's a few. All right, okay, good. Don't applaud for it. We're just old, all right? <laughs> um, but Tigis goes here, and she's part of our Habeshaw ministry of folks from Ethiopia and Eritrea. And so Friday, she was a little, a little sober. She goes, so when is your last day before you retire? And I says, you weren't at church last week, were you? She said, no. I said, you didn't watch the message either, did you? And she thought I was getting on her case. She goes, no. I said, well... Go back and watch it because what you'll see is that the board unanimously decided that the, the process hadn't gone as we anticipated, so we're just going to punt on retirement and not worry about it for at least two years. She, says, she, said, she went, oh. So if you haven't heard that, um, you're stuck with me. But, uh, so go back and rewatch the end of the message. But I'll be honest with you, prepping this, there was this little sarcastic voice in my head go, yeah, great, you're back, and now you get to preach Amos and Hosea. And uh, it is something that I don't necessarily like or want to do, but I feel responsible to do it because James says, let not many of you desire to become teachers because as such, you will incur a stricter judgment. So I'm, I'm bound to share this, especially preaching through the Bible. So let's dive in. If you have the CLC app, you can follow along. And uh, Hosea calls out a familiar flaw. In chapter 4, Verse 1, he says, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, verse 6 says, because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. And likewise, he rejected them from being his people. This idea of knowledge of God, I can't help but immediately jump to our mission statement, which is to know God, to be his people, to value others, and to change our world. 
And that knowledge of God, to know God, is not just cognitively, academically, okay, know about God. No, it is knowing God soul deep in an experiential, relational way, as well as knowing and understanding and rightly interpreting his word. There's no knowledge of God. I wish I could say there's no knowledge of God out there, just out there, which is increasingly true. But one of the reasons as a team we decided let's do a flyby of the Bible and uh, preach that through the summer is because Christian sociologists tell us that one of the problems facing the church is an increasing level of uh, biblical illiteracy in the church. And... When I read further the verses between 1 and 6, he says there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, sexual immorality. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. I mean, I read that. That sounds real familiar. That sounds modern day, not thousands of years ago. Joyce and I were talking, where can we go for like an overnighter uh, this summer or getaway? And we talked about different large cities we've visited before. And I said, you know what? I don't want to go to that one. I don't want to go to that one just because of all the violence that seems to be happening. And, and later it says in verse 4, yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof. We are living in that kind of a society. You don't tell me what to do. Who are you to correct, confront me on my life, my lifestyle, my choices? You have no right to do that, and if you do so, you're a bigot. And the next verse, it says, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. I'm not a priest, but I know what it's like to be contended with when I simply preach what God's Word says and people now take issue with it and want to take aim at me. I was at Planet Fitness a few weeks ago and I was on one of the ellipticals and they have all the TVs, you know, and so I was watching like five TVs at once, which goes real good with an ADD kind of mindset. Bing, 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 right? And it's the only time I would watch The View. I'm not a fan, but The View was on and one of the hosts of The View it was during the time that Nancy Pelosi, that the archbishop in California banned her from receiving communion. And she said, and what's with this archbishop who's not letting Nancy Pelosi take communion? He doesn't, you, don't have a right, you don't have a right to do that. I mean, who are you to tell her she can't take communion? That's not your job. Stay in your lane, man. And I thought to myself, I'm not Catholic, but as far as I know, that is his job. And you have an irreligious person speaking to people of faith saying, you can't, you shouldn't, you mustn't. And we have a culture saying, don't confront me. Don't speak to that. And who do you think you are? And don't listen to me and, and certainly discern what I say. But as a pastor, not priest, but I want to declare this word. And it's your responsibility what you do with it. But we must declare this word. And so... There is meant to be, in knowing God, easy evidence. If you really know God, people should be able to observe your life and say, based on the evidence, I can tell you know God. I can tell she's a Christian. I can tell he's a Christian. Fruit is what the Bible calls it. And the people of Israel had long fallen from that, and I wonder how many of us have fallen from that. And the second point is a phrase we don't see put together very much, but spiritual prostitution destroys people. And Amos says in chapter 9, verse 1, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations, for you've played the prostitute, forsaking your God. You've been somebody who shows no regard for intimacy, and faithfulness, and your sex for hire. And what God asked Hosea to do, I, I'm blown away that he does it. But in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife who is a prostitute, who has children through her sexual sins. For the land commits flagrant immorality, forsaking the Lord. There's a flagrant immorality that people are unfaithful to me and, and, and breaking the bonds of marriage through sexual immorality is one of the only reasons God allows divorce and remarriage. But there is such a sense of betrayal in that and God uses that as the analogy. You are, you are unfaithful to me going after other gods. 
in uh, Hosea chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And then they do not cry to me from their heart. When they wail on their beds, they turn away from me. And it reminds me too much of our current world, where there's all kinds of crying about all the things that we're facing and dealing with, but there is not a let's turn to God for the solution. There's anger and there's rage. And the people of Israel, I mean, this is the family that God chose. These are the ones he delivered from slavery in Egypt. These are the ones that he spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, gave him the Ten Commandments. The first the three commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no graven images, no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And they did all three of those. I mean, significantly so. And the kings of Israel led the people in idolatry and putting up idols to other gods and led them in false worship and all the pagan, immoral, sexually immoral, in every way immoral behaviors. And God says, you are spiritually unfaithful to me. And we can't just point back, what, 2,700 years and say, yeah, that's them. There are far too many parallels now. The statement that I read earlier, the dreadful severity of the judgment of a God of justice on ungodly people who knew better, I can't help but think about a nation who makes a pledge that we are one nation under God. I can't help but think about being part of a nation that I don't know how long it'll take until there is enough of a push to take off of our currency the phrase that really is not that meaningful anymore. In God we trust. And we like to sing, God bless America, but as far as I know, blessings come from obedience, not from turning your back on God. Let's talk about the unexpected motive for judgment, and I want to talk about some of the ways that God judges a nation and see if those are teeing up for our future. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, it's right in the middle of him saying, man, the destruction is coming. I mean, you listen, read Amos and Hosea. There is not a happily ever after to this message. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. And that's where I'm going to leave you with it. Take it and wrestle with it. Because even though God says, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, in the end, Israel was taken off with cruel conquerors to foreign lands. Imagine if your family members did survive. Imagine them being ripped from your home, from your life, taken wherever you're never to see them again. But the ravages of what's spoken of and the things that were going to come upon them, and I mean, I mean, there's talk about just conquering nations coming in and slaughtering the people and babies ripped from mother's wombs. and I mean, it's, it's harsh and horrible. And I'm like, God, how do you, what do we do with this? And even in the midst of all that, and God's saying, this is what's going to happen to you. And then he, he pauses and he says in 11, verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun, places that have received God's judgment? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I have such compassion for you. I love you. And you look at uh, Hosea, uh, Amos, rather, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family. You know that family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the 12 tribes of Israel, the family which he brought to up from the land of Egypt. By the time they left Egypt, they were 1.5 million strong, the nation of Israel. You only have I chosen. I chose you. I picked you. You're the nation I chose. Not the Amorites, not the Perizzites, none of them. You're the nation I chose you among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'll let this one slide. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities, all your sins. Whoa. We're your, we're your chosen people, God. Fast forward. We got it on our money in God we trust. God bless America. 
No, he says, because you're the ones I chose, because I love you, I will punish you. And, and as you read Hosea and Amos, you see the severity he's talking about. It is sobering. And yet, go back last week on Father's Day, and I talked about, you know, how dad's disciplined, and, and, and that's not a big stretch for us. In fact, we even read in the Scripture that a father disciplines the, the child in whom he delights. If a father loves his kids, one of the things he does is he disciplines them, and God is saying, my love for you and compassion for you will not allow me to leave your sin unaddressed. He is very patient, if that's the right word. He is very long-suffering, and he lets sin go for a long, long time. But he also knows, we'll hear from Isaiah in future weeks, Isaiah talks about the fact that our sin creates a wedge between us and God, a chasm between us and God. And if something doesn't happen with that sin, if it doesn't get dealt with, if it doesn't either get confessed or repented of, then that sin can not only separate us from God now, but also in eternity. Not to mention the fact that sin brings huge consequences over time. The reason God says don't sin is because it separates us from him and sin causes pain, dysfunction, and complication, one or all three of those that are beyond what we were wired to handle. And so he says don't do it. And we tend not to be scared enough, sober enough about sin, but God knows how fatal it is to us, how destructive it is to us. And so, boy, when we sin, the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness and unrighteousness. So all you who served in love, Dayton, thank you for doing that. And when you got in your, your vehicle on your way home, you had this good feeling that attaboy, girl, wow, I feel so good. That's the Holy Spirit convicting your righteousness. But it also convicts you of unrighteousness. How many of you ever sinned and then felt convicted for it? Let me see all of our hands, I hope. You see, when we sin and he convicts us, the proper response, I've said this countless times, the proper response to conviction is repentance. God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, thought that, done that, whatever. Please forgive me, I'm sorry. When I repent and I am asked for forgiveness, then I am forgiven. And theologically, I am justified. It, justification means God looks at me just as if I hadn't sinned. Boom, my sin is forgiven. It's removed as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. And so then I move on. And then if I am forgive, if I'm convicted, repentant, forgiven, then there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And if you have for confessed sin and been forgiven of that sin and you keep feeling guilty and shameful for that sin, stop it. Jesus died so you could leave that at the cross. But, but, if we are convicted and then maybe we repent and we're convicted, we don't feel that bad about it, and uh, convicted, and then a few times later we repent. Over time, you can harden your heart to sin. You can rationalize it and say, well, my sin's not as bad as theirs, or my sin is just like theirs, or whatever. And, and over time, we even forget to be repentant about it, to forget to be sorry or brokenhearted about it, and our sin doesn't bother us a whole lot, that your sin doesn't bother me. And, and so we harden our heart, and, and, and if we have a hardened heart about sin, that sin is going to damage our life now and lead us straight to hell, and God loves you enough he'll take his best shot with Israel and now to break the hardness of your heart and bring it to repentance. That is why he brings judgment upon his people. And when you look, you see that over and over again in Hosea and Amos. Fast forward to Revelation, which is even a scarier book than Amos and Hosea are, right? And God pours out in that in the analogy is bowls of wrath. I mean, it is horrible stuff over and over. And on more than one occasion in Revelation, it says, and after all this, still they did not repent. God doesn't do judgment, doesn't pour out judgment on people because he's in a bad mood about their sin. 
Judgment is a last recourse for God because they won't respond to conviction. They won't respond to any other thing. So finally, he says, okay, I love you enough not to let you stay blind and hardened in your sin. I'm going to take my best shot to break down your hardened heart so that you will finally repent and you can be restored. That happened in the history of Judah several times when kings came to repentance. It never happened in Israel, and so they were Defeated and devastated. Galatians 6, verse 7 is true in Amos 5.21. You cannot just take one verse out of Scripture and make a theology out of it. God is this way, life is that way. If there are other verses that speak to you, you have to harmonize Scripture. And Galatians 6, I kind of like. Verse 7 says, do not be deceived, don't be fooled. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And when I see people that seem to be getting away with it, I go, yeah. They're going to get theirs, right? Why is that? Why is it that we are so bothered by unfairness slash, let's make it more serious, by injustice? I believe because we're created in the image of God. Our sexuality is part of the image of God. Male and female created he them in the image of God. And I believe that, that God created us in his image and God is a God of justice. So he has imprinted on us a heart that beats for justice. And when we experience injustice, whether it's in our life and it's not fair, or whether it's in culture, we see injustice happening. We're like, we want justice. And what does God require of you, O oh man, the Bible says, but to do justice, to, walk, to love mercy and to walk humbly. That cry for justice is because we have a God of justice who created us and we want to see that happen. I want to see justice happen out there. I'd rather not have to have justice and sow what I reap or reap what I sow. But there is that sense. Okay, you do reap what you sow. And I always put on the end of there, and if you've been here a long time, you know I'm going to say, I put on the end there eventually. Because there are some people who sow a lot of bad stuff. It seems like they never have to pay for it. Eventually, and nothing else that eventually comes when we get to the book of Revelation at the judgment seat of or the great white throne judgment. And then Amos 5:27, therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. You have sown evil over and over and over again. You have hardened your heart even though I have changed my mind on numerous occasions and gave you more mercy, more mercy. You keep hardening your heart so you are going down. Thirty years later, they did. Thirty years later, I tried to imagine the horrors and the atrocities that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, endured. Imagine a marauding military force. We talk about the war crimes that Russia is committing in the Ukraine. It makes Russia look like Boy Scouts, what they endured, ravaging them. Think about some of the things happening in the Middle East where Christians are being killed and being decapitated by militant Islamic forces. Think about that level of cruelty. Think about that just coming in tanks and armed forces down your street. Ripping your children out of your home. Your husband's gone. Your wife is gone. Never to be seen again. That kind of horror is what they endured. And that's not the only way God brings judgment. Four ways that I think are, and again, sound it out for yourself, but four ways that God tends to judge a nation. One is natural disasters. Floods. He threatened a big fire. On one occasion, uh, plagues of locusts and whatnot to damage and de devastate their crops. The second is economic devastation. God often judges nations and does so by striking them economically. That's scary. A third way is through military difficulty and defeat. And a fourth, God often judges nations through health issues uh, called pestilence in the Old Testament, but we call them pandemics today. Now, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher that 
that wants to label all this stuff judgment, 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 but I don't know anywhere in Scripture, help me if you find the verse, that says, and yea, verily, God hath decided from this day forward he shall never use uh, judgment against a nation that includes natural disasters, economic devastation, military defeat, and health issues. I don't see that that's stopped. And so I don't know which natural disasters in the last century that happened worldwide or happened in our own nation. I don't know which wildfires God started or what drought is part of his plan. I don't know what tsunamis or earthquakes or hurricanes or tornadoes were God's judge trying to get our attention through judgment, but I'm certain some of them were. In the last century, I don't know what economic crashes in our nation or now a global economy around the world. I don't know which ones was God saying, I'll show you in, in God we trust it's not your currency, it's me, and striking a nation financially. I don't know which financial crises were part of God's effort to get people's attention, but I'm sure some of them were. I don't know what military actions, and I don't know what pandemics were God saying, okay, take that. How about that? Are you going to listen to me? Are you going to turn to me now? I don't know which ones were, but I'm certain some of them were. And it's been a real shift. When you live long enough, you can look back and see a history that is very troubling to me. If you're 40 and under, it's harder. It's kind of the frog in the kettle phenomena. It's hard... Our current world is your normal. And so I'm going to ask for no applause on this next part of the message, uh, regardless of your, your persuasion or opinion. But this week, our Supreme Court thankfully overturned Roe v. Wade. And there is an outpouring of anger by much of our culture about that, mislabeling what the decision is, and, and angry that a woman's right to choose has been taken away. And what is this world coming to? Now, I'm old enough that Roe v. Wade became legal when I was a junior in high school. So I remember a pre-abortion world. And a, an a non-abortion world, which is really not what the ruling is saying, it's putting it at a state level, but a non-abortion world must, can only be sustained and must be sustained by a biblical worldview. Last weekend when we dedicated babies, I referenced Psalm 127, verse 3. I believe I have to base my worldview and reactions on Scripture if I'm a Christ follower. So do you. Psalm 127, verse 3 says, Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. I believe I dedicated several adorable little gifts from God last week. That's what a child is. I believe that those children in Psalms, David says that you formed me in my mother's womb. I believe that a child being formed in a mother's womb is a gift from God and is a work of God. And I also believe Proverbs 6, verse 16, that it lists seven things God hates. You know this God of Amos and Hosea? There's some things he hates. One of them is hands that shed innocent blood. I can think of no more innocent blood than the blood of a baby that hasn't even breathed their first breath outside mom's womb. That's as innocent as you get. And we as a nation have slaughtered. Harsh word, Pastor Stan. If you can watch Silent Scream, if it's still available on the internet, watch it. Abortion is slaughtering. We have slaughtered over 60 million children just in our nation alone. And on top of that, we have wounded those 60 million would-be moms and loved ones who get a wound in their soul. And I also, my worldview about what I look at in the mirror every day, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, let me read it directly for you. Paul says in verse 18, flee immorality, sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against their own body. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Therefore, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So the whole mantra, my body, my choice, is not biblical 
So for those of us who espouse to God's word, I cannot champion that, declare that, or defend that. And the problem is, a lot of our young people have not been adequately discipled by parents passing on God's word to them. You don't even know that that's the case. And so culture creeps into the people of God, did in the Old Testament, it's doing now. And so culture is creeping in among us. And some of you young people, I'm certain, are for the first time going, are you serious? Is not my body my choice? You don't know. And the Bible, what did Amos say? My people perish for lack of knowledge. Your only exposure to God's word can't be the 35, 40 minutes that I give you every week. And so I see a nation that is saying, how dare you take away our right to slaughter infants before they breathe air? I say, thank God that that happened. But we as a nation have reinterpreted children being a gift from the Lord. Children are discretionary and disposable. We have reinterpreted marriage that God defined through Obergefell and Hodges, what, seven years ago now. We are a nation that is doing that and championing that. And then you go to Romans 1, it says, not only do they know that these things, God is against them and they bring judgment, they give hearty approval to those who do the same. And we were talking about, the, we, we debriefed on the service on Saturday night, and the team was talking, and you know, I'm, I'm twice the age of most of the worship team. That's sobering. There were a couple that had a bunch of birthdays with me. And so we said, you know, the difference that's happened is that when we were younger, when I was younger, evil that people were doing, they knew it was wrong. They knew I shouldn't. It was kind of kept, the, evil was kind of kept in the dark, if you will. It was the unspoken. It was I shouldn't but. And, and even in, in the old days, man, when I started in ministry, I graduated college in 1979, non-church people at least had this sense, I should go to church. Now, people have never been to church, many of them, and so why should I go there? But we were talking that, you know, evil has changed, so rather than being in the shadows and hiding in the dark, now evil is out and proud and bold, and evil is angry. And you better not tell me what's right or wrong. And you better not tell me that this shouldn't be. And who are you to judge? I'm not judging. God's word is the judge. But we're responsible to know it and to live it. And whatever the world needs, the world does not need a, a church that's now in a bad mood and angry and combative. That's a fine line to walk, but the, the, the world needs a loving church that also is a church that is grounded in truth and stands on truth and declares God's truth unflinchingly and is a place of grace and mercy and healing and forgiveness and restoration now more than ever before. It's amazing how we talk about following the science and yet the science of ultrasounds. I mean, Joyce and I were talking, you know, we battled infertility for like eight years, and when I remember being in the gynecologist's office, and we're watching the screen, and we saw the little, and she, the gal pointed out, you see that? Boom, 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 boom. That's Jonathan's heartbeat. That's a baby. And the fact that we can take science and harden our hearts and blind ourselves to it, God's only going to tolerate that for so long. Thank God for the reversal of the decision. So prayer can make a difference. And, uh, and so here is the hopefulness of the message, and, and we'll land on these verses and close. But Amos chapter 7, verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crops began to sprout. There is this huge plague of locusts coming, going to destroy everything. Behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing, and it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land. I mean, just gone, all right? That I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob, how can Israel stand for Israel is small? 
and the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. In that same chapter, the next verses goes on, and God then was going to contend with them with fire, wildfires, out of control. Sound familiar? And Amos once again begs God, God, please pardon. And again, same chapter, verse 6, the Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord. It is possible for godly people to appeal to God, to humble themselves and turn to him. And God may say, okay, I'm going to put that off because what I want is repentance rather than judgment. 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, God says, if I use tools of judgment, my words, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, Drought. If I command the locusts to devour the land, plague, or send pestilence, which is a plague, like a pandemic, among my people, and my people who are called by my name, I get their attention through those things. And they humble themselves, and they pray, and they seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. The remedy for all of the evil in this world is not to be sought. Wanting celebrities and media who are so far gone, wanting them to come to their... You know how you should expect non-Christians to act and think? Like non-Christians. Do you know how you expect people who are not people of God's word to interpret life? not according to God's word. The remedy for all that's going on starts here. Starts with us. So in a moment, we're going to close this service with a time of communion because Paul said that when we take communion, we should examine ourselves. Because there's plenty not right just in the body of Christ modern day, that if that were to get remedied, we could create a chain reaction of righteousness that's contagious to a world that is longing for it and just doesn't know it. So listen to what Amos says at the end of the, near the end of the book. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. What's he referring to? All back and forth in Amos Judgment, restore, judgment, restore, judgment. You're going into exile. You're going out. No, I can't. It's going to happen. It does happen, but he offers them a ray of hope. I'm going to restore you and bring you back, and you're going to rebuild. They'll also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And then I get excited, and I look back at history, but then I realize, whoop, no, 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 no. That really hasn't happened yet. Yes, we'll read Nehemiah. We'll see Ezra, that after the time of exile, God did bring them back, and they did rebuild, and they were restored to a degree. But if you study history, you know that that restoration then was not permanent. And in the centuries before Christ, Israel ceased to exist. They finally came together as a vassal state under the Roman Empire when Jesus was around. But 70 A.D., obliterated again and gone. It wasn't until 1948 that God drew Israel back together from north, south, east, and west, and they became an earthly nation. But, but this verse here is referring to something beyond that. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. There is coming a day when we get to Revelation, we'll read about the millennial reign of Christ, and we will read about a restoration from God, and then from then on, they will never be uprooted. From then on, righteousness will always prevail. And so even Amos says, you know, look forward to Jesus. There's a Redeemer coming, but then he's going to promise to come again. And once he comes again, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and there is goodness and righteousness forever. And so as we close with the time of introspection, if you have your elements, if you'll get the bread out and prepare the cup, if you didn't pick these up, raise your hand and your section leaders will get them to you. Just raise your hand all across the audience. Hold it up until they get them to you. The Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord that which was I delivered to you on the night Jesus was betrayed. He took bread, 
After he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And while he was speaking in the literal of his physical body that was about to be broken mercilessly, there's also a, a symbolic dimension of the body of Christ. He talks about us. We are the body of Christ, the church. And we're to value the body correctly, Paul says. And if there is ever a time that this world needs the body of Christ to be people who are grounded in God's word and living it, to be people who, who do justice, to people who, who love mercy and walk in humility, it's now. If there's ever a time that people need to be able to walk through these doors and realize, wow, I'm walking in on a collective us, they love God, they love each other, and they love me, and I want this. To be a place that lost people can come and be forgiven and be found. To be a place that hurting people can be loved to a place of wholeness. It's now. And to be people who can declare truth that is timeless and eternal. The world needs that now. You have heard me say many times that Satan doesn't fear a big church. He fears a united church. And if Satan can divide the church now when the world needs the church most, he will. And being the church, while I appreciate it, is not just hurrying here and getting here just before service starts and running and maybe grabbing a cup of coffee and sitting and hearing worship and listening to the message and smiling at people on your way out and, and going out. No, it, it is meant to be us. So if you'd bow your heads with me, would you ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart? Search your valuing of the body of Christ and your connection and relationship and role. Thank him for other Christians who've been a blessing to you, who mean a lot to you. And if there is a, a deeper connection that you sense he's calling you to, surrender yourself to that. And Lord, there was, as we think back and read the Gospels, you were so relationally, emotionally connected to Peter and James and John, the disciples and the, the others who followed you. It wasn't an impersonal religion. It was a, a relationship you invited them to. And I pray that you would bless us at Christian Life Center with a sense of brotherly love and kindness toward one another that we'd bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, that we rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, struggle with those who struggle, and that we would be open-armed and open-handed and open hearts to all those who would come here who are looking for Jesus, who need forgiveness, who need hope, who need comfort, who need peace and strength. And that we who are planted on the crossroads of America, that we lift Jesus up and you would draw all people to yourself. So, Lord, speak to each of us and help us to say yes to being drawn into the body of Christ in meaningful ways through our own involvement with each other. In your name we pray. Let's take the bread together. In the same manner, Paul says, he took the cup. And Jesus told them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ speaks to us of both healing and forgiveness. By his stripes we're healed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So if you need healing, maybe you're one of those people who experienced the pain of abortion firsthand and it's created that wound in your soul. Ask him for healing. Maybe there are wounds in your life, emotional, relational, mental. Maybe you need healing physically, whatever it is. He is the great physician of body and soul. Ask him for it. The blood also speaks to us of forgiveness. And I am so glad that uh, the forgiving power of the blood doesn't run out 
The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I add to that first time every time. And so if there are sins that trouble your conscience as we bow our heads to pray, confess it. Repent of it. And then allow yourself to be forgiven. And if there's guilt and shame you're carrying from sins you've confessed, remind yourself that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and let it go. And Lord, we're so thankful that you forgive us of our sins. But if reviewing the book of Amos and Hosea does anything, Lord, for me, it it also reminds me that we are to be brokenhearted and troubled by the, the sins of the people that surround us. Not that we're to bring judgment, that's your role, but God, brokenhearted that we would humble ourselves, that we would call to you and that we would pray and that you would bring healing to this land. So God, while we thank you for forgiveness, we pray that the United States of America, that you will humble us. And God, if you can spare us from judgment, we ask that. But first of all, help the church to be bothered enough by the evil of sin that we'll be people of prayer and people of repentance. And as we pray for our nation and as we represent your truth in loving, unshakable ways, that there will be a move of repentance, that there will be a revival in this nation and that there will be salvation to many. So break strongholds of wickedness in this land and use us as agents of your love and your righteousness. We thank you for that. We trust you for that. And we thank you. We just thank him for forgiving you. Thank him for his amazing grace. Maybe that's the first time you've prayed to ask for forgiveness. Know that he forgives you of your sin and welcomes you as his child. And Lord, we pray for a community around us filled with evil. Draw those evil people here. Help them to sense your love in us for them. Help them to hear your truth, surrender their life, and be born again to a brand new hope. In your name we pray. Let's take the cup together. Admittedly, it's a pretty heavy message. And uh, as I said, there's no, let's go skipping on and it's happily ever after. It's somber, it's sober. And uh, our time now more than ever to be people of God's word, people of love, people of passion. Take a moment, I've asked Juan just to play. You can sit and reflect a little on what you've heard. Ask God, how do I process this? What do I do with this? And how do we be who you want us to be? And you can just dismiss yourself. Thanks.